On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the biggest new state laws taking effect September 1st, a crisis facing indigent defense in Texas, the new Texas Secretary of State, and the latest from the presidential campaign trail. But before we do, I want to thank our Tribcast sponsors. Texas State Technical College, the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu. And the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association. Formed in 1877, the association is the largest and oldest livestock organization based in Texas, representing more than 17,500 members. More at tscra.org. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, August 21st with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Hello. Associate editor Alexa Ura. Hello. Hello. Political reporter Alex Samuels. Hi there. And we will be calling in former Texas Tribune reporter turned Washington Post reporter Nina Satija pretty soon here. As always, we will take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Okay, Nina, I want to start on the phone with you. On Monday, we published an investigation that you've been working on for months in partnership with the Tribune and Texas Monthly on the state of indigent defense in Texas and how judicial conflicts of interest are denying poor Texans their right to an effective lawyer. First of all, for the very uninitiated, explain what indigent defense even is. Sure. Um, So indigent defense um, is kind of the service of providing lawyers to people who can't afford lawyers. And so if you're arrested and you're charged with a crime, you can't afford a lawyer, uh, the government is supposed to provide one for you to represent you, um, try to get your case dismissed, um, get you to plead guilty or not guilty or whatever it might be. Got it. All right. And so there are multiple facets to your really incredible story, but starting with this sort of baseline condition, and that is that Texas's indigent defense system is inadequately funded and its attorneys are overloaded. So just before we even get to sort of the major conflict of your story, like how did we get into the situation we're in? How did we get to that baseline? Yeah, so we got to this situation um, because essentially governments, state, county, the nation, sort of never really saw indigent defense funding as a priority. Um, and we've seen this again, you know, in a lot of discussions about the criminal justice system lately is it's, you know, not very fair to the poor. Uh, the poor usually get the short end of the stick here. And um, because local governments in general have to shoulder this burden of funding, they've cared more about roads, transportation, schools. And so there just hasn't been enough money to really pay lawyers the proper amount to represent people who can't afford their own. Um, And that's a big part of why we're in the situation that we're in today. Um, But, of course, you know, one of the points that I wanted to make is that there are issues besides money that are at play here. And so even if we had all the money in the world to fund engine defense, there would be some really, really big issues with making it better. Right. Well, let's talk about those issues. You know, beyond the the um, inadequate funding, your reporting shows that a growing body of caseload data points to this really troubling problem, the unchecked power of Texas judges. Uh, explain uh, what you learned and what that means for indigent defense in Texas. Sure. So the way that it works in Texas and in many other states is actually if you are too poor to afford your own lawyer, the judge who's presiding on your case is actually going to decide who your lawyer is going to be, which really is kind of a crazy situation, according to a lot of lawyers and experts that you talk to. Um, The judge is going to decide 
what lawyer is going to represent you. Um, and then that judge is also going to control the entire case. So that same lawyer, if that lawyer wants to argue about your charges, if that lawyer wants to hire an investigator on your case, all of that, the judge is going to make those decisions. Um, most judges want their courts to run efficiently. They want cases to be resolved quickly. Um, that often means they don't like it when lawyers try to argue and defend their client as zealously as possible. So this really creates a, a, a huge conflict, and it incentivizes a lot of these lawyers to just move things along quickly, encourage their clients to encourage their clients to plead guilty. They don't want to piss off the judge, um, and so you have this vicious cycle. Tell us, so tell us a little, there's an incredible anecdote, lead anecdote in your story uh, about a man named Marvin Wilford who got totally tangled up in this situation. Tell us a little bit about Marvin. Yeah, so Marvin um, was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, a very serious crime in Travis County in uh, 20, he was arrested in 2017 and he spent about a year in jail. It turned out that someone else had actually signed an affidavit uh, saying that they had been the ones to actually commit the crime, um, or at least to, uh, to you know, fire their weapon and all the things that Marvin was accused of. Um, he ended up having one of the most overloaded lawyers in uh, Travis County and in all of Texas, a guy named Raymond Esperson. And the interesting thing is that in Travis County, they were supposed to have kind of overhauled their whole system of providing lawyers for the poor a few years ago and get the judges out of the process. Um, to try and make sure that people like Marvin Wilford and other poor defendants would have a better experience with their lawyers. But it turns out the judges are still very much in charge of the process in Travis County. Um, they were, it's interesting, I talked to some of them, they were aware of how much work Ray Esperson had to do. They were aware of how crazy his caseload was. Um, and they were still supportive of it. They were supportive of him as a lawyer. They defended his caseload. And um, they actually refused to lower caseload limits in Travis County as a part of that whole overhaul. So what it really showed is that, you know, the judges still have a lot of influence, and that's a big part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to close, what are you hearing in response to this project? It was really extraordinary. There were so so many details, so many incredible cases that just were very eye-opening. What are you hearing uh, in the aftermath? I'm hearing from a lot of people, particularly in Texas, where there are a lot of debates going on right now about how to improve the system. And I think what they're, what they're telling me is it sparked a lot of discussion around the need for caseload limits in various counties, particularly in Travis and Harris counties. Um, it's discussing the need to get the judges out of the process or at least get them to agree to proper caseload limits. That's a huge thing. And um, we might actually see some movement on this. Um, there's also some discussion I heard from a lawyer yesterday who said he's trying to get a public defender's office created in Potter County, one of the more rural counties in the Panhandle, and wants to point to some of the examples that we've brought up um, to show that you really need a well-funded uh, public defender's office with real caseload limits to actually make sure that poor defendants are getting the representation they deserve. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Nina. We miss you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take All care. Right. Okay, so we are just 10 days away from September somehow, uh, which means that Ross is here to talk to us about the slate of new Texas laws taking effect September 1st. Uh, This, in my opinion, is not a boring list. It is a a very strange list that runs the gamut from alcohol to cigarettes to not just brass knuckles, but knuckles. Yeah, knuckles and also wildcat keychains. Uh, um, whatever those are. Which is a thing I, I had to look it up on. If you Google wildcat keychains, it looks like if you were punched in the face with one, it really hurt. Um, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's legal now. So, you know, they passed a bunch of stuff. I was just digging up the number of bills. They filed 7,324 bills this session. They passed 1,429. So there's that many new laws 
taking effect. Some of them get giant headlines and a lot of attention like the budget and school finance and property taxes and Hurricane Harvey legislation. But some of them don't. And, and some of them, you know, are, are somewhere in the middle. But there are a lot of interesting things taking effect. Uh, we're going to have more school marshals now. More people are allowed to carry guns around elementary and secondary public schools in Texas. Churches need signs or guns are okay in churches and some other places now. Guns they, are not already okay in churches? Uh, no, they're sort of, you know, they're kind of a, Even in Texas. a Midland thing. But, you know, now if you don't have the big, um, it's called a 30-06 sign. The original sign is 30.006 hmm. in the law. And a 30-06 sign basically says handguns are, are not permitted in here. And it has to be, you know, you've seen them outside of different establishments. And if you haven't been seeing them outside your church, you will see them soon. Uh, you can carry a weapon without a license in Texas for a week after a natural disaster now. Mm, wow. Because there mm. was some kind of glitch that came up that concerned somebody about not being able to carry their gun after Hurricane Harvey. So we've solved that problem, whatever that was. Meaning uh, like if your license floated away, you Or you didn't okay. have a license or, <laughs> you know, you just need to protect your boat. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, Got it. <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, rental landlords can't prevent residents from having guns now. So that was a thing. Um, they're, always, they're always solving problems I didn't know we had. Yep. And it's really not a, a reflection on the laws they're passing. It's just the size of the amount of the world that I don't know. Um, lemonade stands are now legal. You don't have to have a health department permit. Glad we so, solved that uh, who, massive problem. I know. Whoever had to have a permit. It's a, it, you know, this turned out to be a great and, you know, analogy and example for overregulation of business. You know, why they're even going after little Dorothy's, you know, lemonade stand. So little Dorothy can sell lemonade now. Knuckles are in there. I've always called, heard them called brass knuckles. Um, you know, wildcat keychains. Uh, those are legal now. Um, they were So brass knuckles were illegal before this. Yeah, they were specifically illegal. They were considered gang hardware. I guess they're not considered gang hardware anymore. So what but, are you supposed to do with them? These uh, are for self-defense? You know, sock people in the nose, I guess, if you're, huh. if, if you're defending yourself. Uh, you can't buy cigarettes unless you're 21 or over unless you're in uniform. If you're a member of the military, uh, you're still okay at 18. Um, they passed a law that basically says rape kits have to be, um, sexual assault, you know, evidence and rape kits have to be uh, processed within 90 days. They've got some, you know, I mean, we've written about it. Others have written about it. Some of these things have been in warehouses for so long that they're now useless. Um, it's, you know, all of this evidence of crime that has never been considered, which is really sort of stunning to think about. Uh, and now they've got um, this 90-day uh, fuse on these things and some funding to get some of these considered. So maybe, you know, they can put together some of these cases that they haven't before. And then we've got, you know, the big bills. The school finance bills take effect. The property tax bill takes effect. We're starting to see stories from city reporters around the state of city and county and other municipal and special utility districts raising their taxes to, the, to just under the 8% growth limit in current law in order to have a higher base in effect mm -hmm. when the new limit of 3.5% kicks in. So the first effect of the legislature's efforts to limit increases in property taxes may be higher property taxes right. just in time for your March election. So, you know, there you go. Good timing. What about beer and booze? Didn't we get some movement there? Yeah, beer and booze, you know, my, you know. My I, personal favorites. I have, to, <laughs> I have to confess to a personal bias here. You know, the, the big companies that make sort of mediocre beer lost a fight to the little companies that make really good beer. Um, 
So now on a Saturday or a Sunday or whatever, when you go to a craft beer place to taste the beer, you can actually buy beer there and walk out. Um, 788 ounces, as mm. it turns out, which is, you know, a couple of three cases or something like that. A lot of ounces. Um, <laughs> you haven't been able to do that. You've had to, you know, it had to get on a truck and be transported somewhere. And Texas has these weird old 1930s era liquor laws that all make sense if you run your business like you did in the 1930s and, and make less sense now. There's also a law that's more uh, going to have more effect on the sellers than on the buyers. And that's a thing that um, loosens the restrictions on how many stores a given ownership can have. Um, it's been limited to family businesses there's a couple of them that have really come to dominate that stuff. And, you know, it's not exactly a cartel. It's not exactly not a cartel. Um, so they're loosening th that a little bit. Um, you still can't buy beer on Sundays. That bill didn't quite. Oh, that one. <laughs> Every Sunday morning when we go to the grocery store, I think to myself. It's before noon. Yeah, yeah. When, you know. Well, I have a three-year-old. We're there before noon. <laughs> We're there by 745 when I really need a drink. Uh, all right, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. The Texas Farm Bureau. Interested in running for the Texas legislature, commissioner's court, or other political office? Then sign up for the Texas Farm Bureau's campaign seminar. We'll walk you through the process. Register at txfb.us slash campaign19. And NAMI. Join NAMI Walks Austin on September 28th as we walk to change the mental health conversation one step at a time. Visit namiwalks.org slash centraltexas. Central TX. I also want to let you know some big news about the Texas Tribune Festival. We announced just this morning that U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will take the stage at the festival. She'll close out the fest Saturday, September 28th with a conversation with CEO Evan Smith. There are some more big announcements to come soon. Check out the full lineup and get yourself registered at festival.texastribune.org. Okay, Alex, you've been all over the Texas connections to the presidential race in the last couple of weeks, so I'm going to ask you to give us the lay of the land. Um, why don't you start with Julian Castro, who seems to have had an outsized voice in the last couple of weeks uh, compared to his polling numbers. Uh, he, you know, I believe, like qualified for the third presidential debate. He was running a Fox News ad. Tell us what he's been up to. Right. So I think a lot um, in the past week or so, we've seen a lot of new policy rolls from Castro. I think he had a you know, quote, policy, because he was an animal-related policy. Policy. That he, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, the political animal headlines were Aww. ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as you mentioned, he um, had that ad run on Fox News, um, which was pretty big because he was hitting Trump directly, basically linking him to an attack in El Paso. And then he later released a digital ad where he was hitting Trump again, specifically on the economy. And then we found out, I think it was yesterday morning, that he qualified for the fall uh, debates in, in Houston. Houston, right? And it's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously the field's going to be smaller for these fall debates. Um, the threshold to uh, make the debate stage is a lot uh, higher now than it was earlier. So I think Castro is now the 10th candidate to make it, which hopefully means we'll only have, you know, won't have to divide it between two nights. Yes, um, right. So if, they, if they get a, if they get one or two more, they split. Is that that's mine? So they would put ten people on stage together. Well, I'm they did in the first two. Ten in the first two. I guess ten it felt a little. Gosh, unbelievable. I think it's really. I mean, the idea that he just only qualified. I think mm. like days before the deadline. Yeah. You know, if you asked me a couple of years ago if that's the situation he would be in when he finally ran for something you know people were waiting for him to do that i i i guess i was pretty surprised that it took so long for even for him to even get to the like what was it four yeah polls the four in which polls, he was at one yeah. or two percent two percent yeah I, I don't know i'm just sort of flabbergasted by it i mean no one has a right to this obviously but it's it's pretty surprising to me 
Well, I, I sometimes wonder if we, like in Texas, give him more sort of credit in this space than you know. Yeah, he's the country he's does. news in forty nine states, and he's right. and he's news in a lot of Texas. You know, he's only really run in Bear County mm-hmm. and, and in San Antonio city limits. So, and his and his brother um, has run, I guess, in Bear and Travis counties, his his congressional district. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of work to do there, and I don't think the ads that he's been running are unconnected to getting the two percent in, totally. in that in that fourth poll. But you know, he's on stage, so on stage is alive. I didn't know anybody could buy an ad on Fox News. Uh, go ahead, Alex. And I was just saying, um, you know, one of the interesting things is that Castro keeps bringing up the repeal of Section uh, 1325 of the Immigration Code. And just talking to a few experts over the last couple of days for another story that I'm working on, their thought is that him bringing that up and bringing that issue to the forefront, especially kind of with the, you know, you know, the spar that he had with O'Rourke on stage during the first debate that might have helped his numbers. Um, and is O'Rourke definitely in this next debate? Yes, he, he made is. it already. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so O'Rourke has also been all over the airwaves in part in response to the, you know, horrific racial violence at the Walmart in El Paso. Um, is he getting a renewed look or renewed attention? You know, I saw one headline like, you know, is the El Paso shooting basically bringing Beto O'Rourke's numbers up? You know, what's his role been in this space? I don't think his numbers, his polling numbers have significantly jumped since the El Paso shooting. You know, he put his campaign on pause, meaning he didn't go to, you know, the Iowa State Fair. You know, he kind of scoffed at the corn dogs and Ferris right, wheels. Right, wasn't I shoving, think his, <laughs> shoving food in his mouth like every other candidate. Yeah. Uh, I think he canceled an event in Nevada and another one in California, but he's still polling around 2 or 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had this little campaign revamp, relaunch event last week in El Paso where he basically was like, you know, um, it's clearer to me now than other, ever before that we really need to beat Trump in 2020 um, because of attacks like this. And now he's really showing that he's going to be on the offensive going forward, which is obviously a different side of O'Rourke than we saw um, in 2018, where he was kind of, you know, Mr. Nice Guy. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see going forward whether that will um, help him mm-hmm. in the presidential field. It's more, you know, he's running a more topical campaign, and so is Castro. I think one of the interesting things about both of them is that um, – for a couple of reasons, you know, the things that have been happening in Texas, the things that have been happening with immigration on the border, and the fact that they're both languishing in the in the race have, you know, sort of, they've toughened up their campaigns. They're talking more specifically about the things that they're uh, comfortable with and the things that they are really running about. It's not generic campaigns anymore, you know, where you look at a list of candidates and you kind of go, well, this one and that one and the other one. It's sort of like those two Texas guys are starting to speak out in ways that they weren't in the original part of the campaign. O'Rourke's campaign now, whether it works or not, feels a lot more like the campaign he ran for Senate. He's kind of doing it his way. He's not on the corndog circuit, as you say. Mm -hmm. Um, Castro is, you know, I think for the first time in this campaign, really finding his voice and, and speaking out in a way that, you know, you were sort of aware of if you were listening very closely to him, but he's much more emphatic now. He's much more in Trump's face, for example, and he's much more specific about you know what he's running for and why and why it matters and how his identity and his and his candidacy are linked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's you know when you think about we're so we're still so far off from the general election, but when you think about the events that's in the lead up to an election that make people think about you know what are you basing your vote on. Um, the El Paso shooting, you know, it was a mass shooting, but it was also white supremacy fueled violence. And I think it has been interesting to watch both of them because so often after mass shooting people, you hear people say, don't make this political. Let's focus on the memorials. Let's go through this process and our reaction. And I think 
for both of for both O'Rourke and Gossler, it's been really interesting because I think obviously O'Rourke is not Hispanic, but this was his community, right. and it was it was this sort of moment where he it was like this like a split screen between him and Trump in terms of what a sort of reaction is like in that moment, and and for Gossler, obviously, you know he understands this on a personal level and you know I, I saw some criticism he got after his ad in which he linked the president to this you know and you can sort of say what you want what whether you believe that's true or not it I think was jarring that for the first time you had a candidate who could even speak to it that personally right I think right. he continues to be able to sort of bring race and his identity to the forefront of his campaign without having to sort of lean into it in a way that feels gratuitous, I think. Right. Um, and it's been really interesting to watch. Obviously, who knows how long both of them will be in the campaign. But, you know, I think come November 2020, it'd be interesting to see how much of El Paso is sort of still right. in the conversation. Well, the first race is the, is the next five months. You know, the, the first primaries are less than 150 days from now. And, you know, the fight for to get on the stage for a debate is a proxy for that. You know, in some ways, that's a primary. If you get on stage, people see you. If people see you, you get some attention. If you get some attention, you can raise some money, and you can stay on stage. Right. And and so that's kind of where we are. And these guys are, you know, in some sense, making you know what amounts to the first cut. We right. go from twenty three candidates to ten or eleven mm -hmm. or twelve. Well, Alex, uh, you know, we mentioned Trump a second ago. Uh, you had a fascinating story last week about how Trump is doing some big spending in uh, Texas on a platform we are all familiar with. What <laughs> is he up to? Yeah, so we use the uh, website Bully Pulpit, which tracks digital spending um, for every, uh, you know, 2020 contender and found that between January 5th and August 3rd, Trump had spent nearly half a million dollars on Facebook ads uh, specifically targeted to Texans. And when you put that just in comparison to Castro and our work, I think the two of them combined spent less than $300,000. So that spending kind of has a uh, people split among party lines. Democrats are like, well, you know, he's obviously spending this much so early on because he's worried Texas is going to flip. Republicans, on the other hand, will be like, well, no, he's just trying to re-energize the base early on, the people who elected him in 2016. The reason why he's spending so much in Texas just shows how much support he has in Texas. So I think, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of unanswered questions, but I think the big thing is that as Trump continues to kind of use Texas as a piggy bank, we'll see whether he's doing it to uh, re-energize that base or try to get new voters out to uh help his re-election campaign. Interesting. Do we know how that compares to his spending in other states? Um, so Texas was number one. Um, well, by, but I'm it's a big state, but also. Yeah. Right. <laughs> California was okay, also in the top five. And then yeah. and the other ones in the top five were other um, big swing states. I know Ohio was in there. I can't remember mm -hmm. um, some of the other ones. Yeah, the Republicans in Texas are worried about turnout. And they're starting a big, you know, they've started a big uh, political action committee to register voters and do get out the vote, which sounds vaguely democratic if you've been watching, you know, politics in Texas for a long time. But, you know, 2018 put a put a little bit of a scare in them, and they want to make sure they have enough people turning out. And, you know, part of what other campaigns are doing, I think probably including Trump, uh, who's got a social media guru from San Antonio in front, is, you know, sort of buttress those efforts and make sure that Texas turns out. If you don't win in Texas, you can't win a national election as a Republican. Sounds like the beginning of a country song. Uh, <laughs> Alexa, so we finally, finally, finally have a new Secretary of State following Texas's botched voter roll review and all the drama that ensued. Who is it? Tell us about her. 
So we have a new Secretary of State. Her name is Ruth Ruggiero Hughes. She's coming over from the Workforce Commission, to which she was appointed by the governor. Uh, like her predecessor, David Whitley, she was a former aide to the governor. And so we're sort of seeing an extension of that pattern of, of appointing someone who, you know, you could just, maybe this is going too far, but a sort of loyalist to the governor. Mm-hmm. Um, it took, I think my last count was either 83 or 84 days to fill this vacancy, which you know, normally wouldn't be anything of note. But I think the last time the governor had to replace an outgoing secretary of state, he took about seven days to appoint them. And, you know, it really just sort of illustrates the ongoing fallout of this botched review of the voter rolls that ended up threatening the voting rights of naturalized citizens and people of color. It's pretty ironic because my understanding is that our new secretary of state herself is a naturalized citizen. Depending on when she naturalized, she very well could have been on this list as well. Um, so I, you know, I think she's Argentinian. That would, she, yes. that would actually give her a really interesting argument. Uh, right. You know. I mean, I wonder, part of me wonders if it took this long because Abbott had to find exactly the right person for a job like this. Although if she was in the Workforce Commission, it seemed like she was right under their noses. Or if all the prospects looked at what happened to David Whitley and slammed the door. Hell no. (laughs) There there were some appointment applications filed with the governor's appointments office that they um, gave to me the day after we had a new secretary of state, conveniently. Um, But, you know, I think... I think the thing is to think about there was this uh, election law seminar this summer where all of the state's election officials showed up. Um, it's a seminar put on by the Secretary of State every year. And um, the person who opened the event was actually the Deputy Secretary of State. And, you know, there were a, there are still a lot of officials across the state who were upset about how this happened. Some of them ended up in court. Some of them were accused of breaking the law for following the advice the Secretary of State gave them to sort of ask people for their sit proof of citizenship. And so there are still a lot of hurt feelings. Uh, This appointment allows her to sort of take over after what could have been sort of a contentious introduction to people. And it also gives Abbott the opportunity to leave her in place until the next legislative session. Whitley did not resign uh, until the last day of the legislative session, even though it was pretty clear he was not going to be confirmed. And in doing that, This person, you know, this new secretary of state can serve in this role with no sort of vetting from the state Senate until they come back. Are there still some loose ends on the, sorry? No, no, I was just going to say, and at that point she will have to be, go through confirmation hearings before the Senate. Yeah, and that's if she hasn't, uh, you know, stepped down before then. Our secretary of states don't tend to last very long in the (laughs) job. Are there still some loose ends on the voter roll thing, or is that all cleaned up now, or all sort of over? Uh, the first iteration of it is completely over. Okay. Um, you know, I've heard from county officials who still want to know. They still haven't gotten a clear explanation of how the state got this so wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think a loose end for them is sort of this frayed relationship. And, you know, we depend on local officials to run our elections. So it's it's a pretty important one. The other thing is that, at the seminar, uh, the state's director of elections said that they're sort of rolling out a revamped version of this review, one that's supposedly supposed to avoid all of these errors that sort of swept in all of these naturalized citizens. Um, that was supposed to happen um, sometime this month. It still hasn't, so we're keeping an eye out for that. I think, obviously, we'll be looking to see if they're able to figure out the data this time. Mm-hmm. Well, there are no loose ends on this TribCast. That's all the time we have this week. Uh, Thanks to the Texas State Technical College, the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association, the Texas Farm Bureau, and NAMI, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. 
On behalf of Ross, Alexa, Alex, Nina, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. You